right. Praise God this morning. Got a couple of announcements for you before we dive into uh, God's word. Um, Discover Bethel is this up and coming uh, Saturday from 9 to 12 p.m. This is our new membership class. If you are interested in uh, being a part of our family here, we encourage you to come out this Saturday at 9 a.m. If you have any questions about that, feel free to see me and we can get you signed up for that. Also, in addition, we have at our welcome desk calendars, monthly calendars um, that you can grab. They're about a half sheet. Um, you can grab those so that you can stay informed on what's going on uh, throughout the month. We'll have those there every every month. There is a correction um, that you need to be aware of that has yet to be made to those calendars out there. Uh, the young adult ministry is shown is reflecting as first and third Tuesdays, and it's really second and fourth, second and fourth Tuesday. So I told you, if you show up, that's on you. Don't get mad at me. All right, all right. Uh, let's dive into God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, be with us, guide us, teach us, transform us. We want more of Christ. We want more of Jesus. We love the name of Jesus. We love the person of Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our friend. He is our all in all. He is our everything. And we are at our best, God, when he is at the center. So rain down with the power of your Holy Spirit. And use your spirit to transform, to enlighten, to convict, Lord, and even bring us to repentance, Lord, so that we may worship you and serve you and give our lives to you in a way that you deserve it. Amen. amen. Come on, so y'all going to say amen better than that this morning. Amen. amen. That's what I'm talking about. All right, so I thought a lot about uh, how I could start this sermon off. And there's no other way to start a sermon off by saying that God is really, really, really big. God is really, really, really big. Who is like our God, church? Who do we put our hope in this morning? Psalm says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But we, the church, we trust in the Lord our God. That's who we trust in this morning. That's where our hope is. And here are a few theological terms we use to articulate who God is. We say that God is sovereign. This is his attribute by which he rules the entire creation. There is nothing outside of his jurisdiction. There is nothing that he cannot do. He rules over all Things. There is nothing over him. God is God of all things. He is sovereign. He orchestrates everything in the entire universe. Another word that we like to use around here to describe God is that he is, he is holy. He is holy. This attribute that sets him apart from all created beings. There is none like him. He is separate. He is perfect. He has moral purity. He's never sinned. He is absolutely free of all sin and all evil. God is holy, church. Another word we use to describe God around here is omniscience. God possesses perfect knowledge. And therefore has no need to learn. God has never learned a thing in his life. He cannot learn because he knows everything. Before you say a word, before you say a thought, he already knows what it is. The Bible says darkness is as light to him. You cannot hide from him. There's no underhand, no backhand when it comes to God. God knows all things. I know there's a lot of teachers that think that they know a lot of things, but God knows everything. Another word we like to use to describe God around here is God is faithful. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. Uh, this is the attribute that assures to our hearts that God is incapable of lying. He's never been a lying God. He's always been a faithful God. What he says, he does. He never says something and does not do it. He is faithful. All of his promises. There's a lot of people that may have fell out on you and tricked you and lied to you. But God himself has never, ever, ever lied. If you check his resume, if you go from Genesis to Revelation, what you'll find out is that he He's a God that keep his word. And the good thing about it is not only can he keep his word, he has all the resources and he controls everything so that he is able to accomplish all that he has uh, set out to accomplish. 
Now this sovereign, holy, omniscient, and faithful God has been on the move in the history of humanity since the time he breathed the breath of life into Adam. Let's get a big picture here of God's big story. There's a slide up here. And the way that we break God's big story down, we break it down into four sections. We say creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So four ways we break God's story down is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's go back to creation. Of course, in the book of Genesis, it says that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we skipped over to Genesis 2.2. Uh, matter of fact, if you got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis 2.2. If you can't find Genesis, Lord help you. <laughs> Close your Bible. You are lost beyond all lost. It's the first book in the Bible. Genesis 2.2. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. I kind of like y'all, so I'm going to move up. All right. Uh, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Don't let that pass you by so fast. What powers is this? The ability to make something come alive. What power is this? That you breathe into dust and dust becomes a living being. What power are we dealing with? What kind of God are we dealing with? A God that causes things to come alive. In the Gospel of John, he describes it, describes him as, in him was life. In him was life. To be connected to God, to be united to God, is to be alive. Anything that is not dead, anything that is dead is not united to God because God is a living being. But shortly after creation, man would turn on God. In fact, there will be one chapter later when the creation would turn on the creator. So we have creation, and now we arrive at the fall a chapter later. Adam and Eve both ate the forbidden fruit. Why? Because they desired to be like who? They desired to be like God. They were glory thieves. They wanted to be the center of the universe, as we talked about last week. And because of this, because of this eating of the unforbidden fruit, they brought condemnation on the entire humanity. They lost communion with God and under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. In other words, Adam in particular. We know the woman ate it first, but the Bible talks about Adam. It says, Adam in particular opened the doorway for the destruction of humanity. Romans puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So when Adam fell in the garden as our representative, as our authority head, when he fell, when he disobeyed God, he gave up his authority. And so what came into the world? Sin and hell and death and destruction. And so all of our children, including ourselves, have been doing what since the fall? Going towards our own way, away from God, haters of God, people who don't desire God by nature. Adam brought destruction on all of us. And as I said before, when I get to heaven and if Adam is there, I'm going straight over to him. And me and him are going to have a little one-on-one chat. And I want to talk to Adam and say, Adam, do you know all the hell you caused me in my life because you couldn't stay away from fruit? But I did. I was thinking about this, though, because I've been analyzing the book of Genesis. And I was like, maybe he wouldn't have ate the fruit if he had some steak or something. Because when I got steak, I ain't thinking about no fruit. But that's a, that's a whole nother story, I was, I was just saying. That was just analyzing. I'm just. So here's our dilemma. All mankind is subject to eternal destruction under the just wrath of God. The question is, who will rescue us? 
Well, if you've been paying attention in our Sola series um, that we ended last Sunday, we found out that Christ alone saves us, right? God sends a savior. Man's issue, man's problem, God in love enters into our situation, right? God didn't do anything, but he enters into our situation. Agape love. We see a love that we've never seen before, right? A love that works on the behalf of undeserving people. Redemption. But before we have a cross with the God-man on there dying in our place, God was moving thousands of years before to redeem us. Creation, fall, and during the fall, so we got creation, fall, and then redemption. But between the fall and redemption, God is at work to redeem us in the Old Testament. We see God acting in such a way that he is pursuing us. He intends to die in our place. The fall starts when Adam and Eve betrayed God. And from the fall to redemption in thousands of years, And so we begin after the fall, after Adam and Eve, we have another character that pops up, and his name is Abraham. And God makes a covenant to Abraham. So here it is. Adam has failed. A few chapters later, God calls on this man. And what is his name? His name is Abram at the time. And God switches his name to Abram. God will change your name on you. He will will do that. He will do that. Uh, your name, Bill, now it's Ray Ray. And your name, your, uh, your name, Ray Ray, your name, Bill. He was like multicultural changes, like <laughs> switch the whole game up. All right. So God now makes a covenant with Abraham. Watch this. He says, behold, in Genesis 17, 4, behold, my covenant is with you. And you should be the father of a multitude, a multitude of nations. Now, I want you to keep this covenant promise in mind, especially the word nations. So I want you to just kind of put a little sticky note on the front of your head, nations. Now, God doesn't stop after he makes that covenant to Abraham. Abraham dies, but not God. And so God moves on to another man by the name of Moses. And everybody in the room, if you've been in church long enough, you know who Moses is. God moves to Moses, and he calls Moses out, right, but uh, through the burning bush. And he equips him and prepares him to free his people out of captivity as they are under the oppression of Pharaoh. And so God says, Moses, I'm going to send you to, uh, to, to tell Moses what I have to say. And what did God say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. And Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. You better be careful telling God no, because God got away of getting his way one way or the other. And so what does he do? Uh, and so what does God do? He sends plagues into, uh, uh, on the Egyptians. He takes their firstborn sons. He spreads the Red Sea. Israel is now free out of captivity. And Moses eventually dies, but not God. And so God now calls up another man, a young man by the name of Joshua. Joshua knows a little bit about God because he's been sitting in the shadow of Moses when, when, when Moses would meet with God and Joshua would sit there and God was getting Joshua ready to do a work for him, namely to capture and to take over and to possess the promised land that God had promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. God will make a promise thousands of years ago and then you won't see it to thousands of years later and you're like, what's up, God? I'm dead. I thought I was going to get my land and now I ain't got it. But thousands of years later, God accomplishes his promise through Joshua. But Joshua dies, and then God moves on. We go through Judges, and there's a couple of prophets and Judges between there, and then we end up where? We end up at the feet of King David. And so God raises up a king by the name of King David. In fact, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. I love David. David was a worshiper. David David didn't play when it came to worshiping God. If you play with God, worship David. David would kill you. I mean, David didn't play. You don't play. David's like, when we worship God, we worship for real. How many for real worshipers I got in the building? I mean, to really worship God with intensity, with all of your heart, with all, I mean, like Red Bull excited about who God is, just hype. And I know some of you like to talk about some of us that like to raise our hands and maybe dance a little bit. But let me remind you that David danced into his underwear. If you want to if, if see some real worship... If I see some fruit or loons in here, we're going to have a problem, though. 
Oh, yeah, we're going to have a problem taking one of these curtains down and we're wrapping them around you and we're sending you out of the door. So just like Abraham, God makes a covenant with David. He says this in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. And when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is thousands of years before Jesus ever steps on the scene. God makes another co a covenant with David and says, you're going to have a kingdom. You're going to have a throne that lasts forever. David dies, but God does not die. And God raises up many kings and many prophets after David. We fast forward now to the book of Matthew. And now we have a savior born unto us. We have a Savior in the book of Matthew. We've been waiting on this for thousands of years, and he finally arrives. And next month, we're going to be celebrating his birthday. Every Christmas, we celebrate his birthday. Uh, our Savior was born into the world. God became flesh, 100% God in 100% man, the greatest miracle in the world. How do you take what is infinite and wrap it up in flesh? Adam created what Adam created back in the garden, Jesus came to be the remedy for. He canceled the sin of Adam, and he is considered the second Adam, and he opens up the doorway for redemption. So now what do we have? We have creation, we have fall, and now we have redemption where we have a Savior dying for us. And now we're in the time period between redemption and restor ultimate restoration. This is the period that we're living in. Crisis died. Now we're going out to do what? Preach the good news. But here's the question. Where is Bethel Gary at in this story? In God's big story. Well, church, we are somewhere between this redemption and restor ultimate restoration period. In 2014, we Bethel Church Gary became part of God's big story. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be a part of God's story. I'm excited to be a part of the story. In fact, I remember when the beginning of our little story began. I remember when God birthed us into his story. I was sitting in the auditorium at Bethel Crown Point. I was only 25 at the time. People always tell me to give my life story. I said, it won't last long. I'm only 29. I don't have much to talk about. We're going to get to the end very quickly. I was 25 years old when Bethel was raising money to plant a campus in Bethel, Gary. And at the time, they had no building or concept of what ministry would look like down here in the city of Gary. No one knew what Bethel, Gary would become. But isn't that how God works? He doesn't tell you everything. How many people had to trust God even when you couldn't trace him? There's times when you got to trust him and you don't know what he's doing. He doesn't tell you everything. He just say, follow me. Trust in my character. Trust in who I am. Follow, 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 follow me, which is why we say we walk by faith and not by sight. I don't see it all. I don't understand it all, but I trust you because you're faithful, you're sovereign, you're good, you're loving. If there's anyone I'm willing to follow, it's God. And a lot of us follow a lot of people blindly, but when it comes to God, we got a thousand questions, but sometimes God says, be quiet and follow me and trust me, and you got to be okay with that. Sometimes God works in that way, and so we didn't know what God had in plan. He doesn't give all the answers. In 2013, God gave us a building, the building that you're sitting in now. More importantly, God gave us you a people to accomplish the work he, he has called this congregation to. Bethel Gary, you are sitting in what was only a dream in 2012 and 2013. In 2014, we started ministry right here in the city of Gary. God confirmed his hand on this church when he sovereignly saved six young men three months after moving into this building. God graciously and sovereignly saved six young men. And here we are. In 2017, 
a small, multi-ethnic church in downtown Gary. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? We can give God some praise for that. And I would say God is still at work, and our best chapters are ahead of us. Our, years, our year is off to a great start. We celebrate the 50-plus students in our WANA program and the 25-plus students in our VERGE program who are mostly neighborhood kids, along with our 20-plus volunteers who are serving. I praise God for the various Bible study groups we have started. Our seniors are doing a fantastic job, not only meeting together faithfully, but reaching seniors in our community. We also celebrate the launch of our man's ministry. Uh, can we give God some praise? 13 men at our Bible study. How many people know we need more faithful men in the church that love their word, that love their family, that are willing to lead their church? Amen. Well, that's right, Don. I heard that word. I'll take that. Um, and we're also looking forward to our women's ministry that will be launching next year, and they'll be going through the book of James. This is not to mention our young adult group who is currently walking through the book of Colossians as they are growing spiritually and relationally. I'm so excited about the young adults. It's just relationships happening. They out kicking it and having fun and so forth and so forth. So I'm excited about what God is doing through that group. And oh, how we love our worship ministry and our dance team who has been blessing us. Amen. You've been blessed by them. We say thank you. And if that is not enough for us as a church to fall on our face, what should we say about the amazing work of City Life Center and what they're doing in this building? They are serving over 80 children a week, parents and families checking out this church because of the work that CLC is doing. We are experiencing much growth in discipleship in outreach, so we ought to give God a crazy, radical, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs praise in the room. Come on, let's stand to our feet and give God a crazy, radical, you lost your mind, praise for all that he's doing and the fruit that we're experiencing. We give glory to God. Amen and amen. When I think about all that is going on in our world and I hear stories like this, I, my soul rejoices in the Lord. However, let me take you back in time once again. In 2013, before this all began, our senior pastor, Pastor Steve, got up before the congregation and said this, Bethel Church is going to Gary. And the congregation just went crazy. I was sitting there. I was there. He used an analogy to help the congregation at that time understand what kind of church Bethel needed to be in order to accomplish the mission God had called us to. He said in summary, we can either be a cruise ship or we can be a battleship. One is devoted to aggression and war and the other is devoted to comfort and leisure. In other words, we could choose to be a church that live for the comfort of ourselves or be a church that went to war with the kingdom of darkness, laying down our lives, giving up our comforts for the sake of reaching people with the gospel. It is evident what kind of ship we chose to be. But now that we are here, church, in the city of Gary, not only do I believe God is call, calling us to be a battleship, but I believe God is calling us to do something else as well. Not only a battleship, but a little, a little tugboat. Now, I know tugboats are not that impressive, but let me explain tugboats to you. There it is right there. It's not the cutest thing in the world, but nevertheless, there it is. Understand, to be a tugboat is to be committed to a specific place and to know it intimately. Tugboats have to be maneuverable and responsive to the slightest variation in the seafloor or local currents. Tugboats are not especially impressive mechanically or visually, but they are indispensable. Tugboats, you may say, are servants. 
They don't navigate for themselves. They navigate to bring other ships safely to shore. You see, church, we are saints only by God's grace. You see, church, God has called us to serve this city and to know it intimately. We have not come here to be served, but like our Savior, we have come so that we might serve. Why? So that we might go and find those who are lost and stranded out in the sea of sin and bring them safely to the shores of grace. Jesus puts it this way. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, this is Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and I love this line, I am with you always to the end of the ages. Jesus intends for all his little tugboats to be out amongst the dangerous waters on mission to bring what is lost to him. And here's a few things you must understand if you're going to be a successful tugboat. Number one, you need to know who empowers you. Jesus' absolute authority. Understand that the mission that Jesus is sending us on as a church, fellow tugboats, it is dangerous. Jesus is not calling you to a small mission. This mission is beyond us. Jesus told his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And you know that's not a pretty sight. What God is calling us to is not something that anyone just joyfully signs up for. He is calling us to lay down our lives and to live sacrificially, to give up our immediate preference, to give up our comforts for the sake of saving others. The waves are high. The winds of opposition are strong. If you do not realize who sent you, you will be intimidated by who and what is against you. And oh, the opposition and the distraction is real. We don't talk about him much in church as we should, but Satan is a real enemy. He is real and he is against us. He, he hates God. He hates his mission. He hates his church. You have an enemy that hates you. And every single day, he wants to destroy you. If you knew somebody was hunting you, how would you act? You would be aware. You would be ready, right? Satan is hunting us. And he'll use politics. He'll use TV. He'll use food. I know some of you are disappointed, but he will. He'll use relationships. He'll use sexual temptation. He'll use peer pressure. He'll use sickness to discourage you and to get you off track of God's mission. This is why before Jesus ever told them to go, before he ever sent them, I want you to understand that God Almighty is sending you, that I am covering you. So no matter what come against you, I'm greater than the waves and the wind and the storm and all that's going to come against you. I'm greater than that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus made this statement to his disciples, to these little tugboats, after his victorious victory over death, hell, and Satan and everything else. After he defeated what was mostly against us, then he tells us, hey, I got all authority. There ain't nothing I can't do. I don't care who it is. Bring it on. What's up? What's good? Doesn't matter. You can bring anything to me. I have authority over it. I have power over it. There's three things I want you to know that Jesus has authority over. Number one, he has authority over all people, every person in the universe. John 17, 2 says, the father, he says, father, the hour has come. This is Jesus praying to his daddy. He says, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him, watch this, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus says, I have authority over all 
flesh. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your role. It doesn't matter your position. At the end of the day, Jesus is over you. You may not like it. You may can't stand it. You, uh, 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 you may want to leave this earth, but you ain't got nowhere to go because he owns all of it. But at the end of the day, Jesus is over everything. Not only is he over every person, he is over every, every demon, Satan in the whole entire dark world. He says this in 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The only thing Satan can get you to do is believe a lie. He wants you to believe that he has power and authority over your life, and he tricks you, and when you do that, he's able to do what? Control you. He has a gun pointed at your head, but there's no bullets in it. Now, there's one thing. When you point a gun at my head, and I don't know that you don't have any bullets in it, but when I find out that there's no bullets in it, it's a whole different ball game. Now it's time to go to, at first I thought you had bullets, but when I find out that you have no bullets in your gun, oh, now, now, now it's a fight, right? And so what we have to understand is that all of his power has been taken away from him. He has no power. All he does is lie and try to scare us. But when we understand that Satan is under our feet, that we have authority over the dark world, that we have power over the dark world, we can walk in confidence. People, the devil, and he also has all authority over the natural world. In Matthew 8, 27, Jesus surprised his disciples. And most people don't wake up out of their sleep and come winds and waves. But Jesus did. And the man marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, church, Jesus has all power. So as we go out into the city of Gary, in surrounding communities, we go in the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names, little tugboats, but big confidence. We say, what can man do to us? Why? Because Jesus has all power and he has empowered us to go. But empowered us to do what? What has he empowered us to go and do what? What has he sent us to accomplish? So number two, the essence of the mission is to make disciples. In verse 19, in Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay, so what is Jesus sending each little tugboat to do? He says, make disciples. As you can see that underline there, make disciples. Jesus isn't asking. He isn't saying, oh, please, do you mind going to make disciples for me? I know you got a busy life. I know you got things going on. But do you mind if you can just fit making disciples in there for me? I would really appreciate that. I know I give you breath and life every day. I really shouldn't have to beg. But if you don't mind, if you mean, I, mean, I mean, if I am your Lord, can, can you just do this one favor? That's not what he's saying. And that's not the tone that he's saying it in. Jesus is commanding you. You go and make disciples. This is not optional for the church. This is a command to us. Go and make disciples. It is the prime directive of the mission. It is the essence of why we exist, to make disciples. If anyone comes up to you and asks, what's the point of church? Here's how you, this is how you should respond. The point of the church is to make disciples. Bethel puts it this way. Our mission is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus whose lives are all about him. If that is our mission, do we know what it is to be a disciple? Essentially, it is to follow the leadership and teaching of another. The meaning is captured in the words Jesus said to Matthew himself, when he called him, what did he tell Matthew? Come and what? Follow me. You, Matthew, follow me. Follow Peter, follow me. All 12 of them, you come, you follow me. I'm the leader, you're the follower. You do as I do. You mimic what I do. Follow me. 
The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. Making disciples begins with what? Conversion. Usually through what? Through evangelizing. It also includes the process of growing and maturing. We don't want you to just be saved. We want you to grow in the knowledge of your Savior. We don't want wimpy Christians in here who are scared of every little thing. We want strong Christians who know Jesus intimately and fully and wholly. You know what I mean? We, we, don't, want, we, don't, we don't want the disciples that don't know their Savior. People get the gospel and say that gospel was for those who first believed. No, the gospel is for all of us every single day, and we need to be growing in Christ. And you know what they say about things that are not growing? They're dead. The new birth and the new life are all part of the mission. So when we make disciples, they are to follow us as we follow Jesus. Paul was a bad boy. When you're able to say, follow me, because as you follow me, you'll become like Christ. That, that's, man, that's pretty big. I mean, people in the room can say that. Like, hey, just follow me. And I'm, I'm mimicking everything that Jesus does, right? So when we make disciples, they are to follow us as we follow Jesus. Now, what does a tugboat do? Right? A tugboat hooks on other boats behind it. And that boat is doing what? It's following or trailing the tugboat. Tugboats seek out what is broken and can't move, and they bring it safely back to shore where it can be fixed. Fundamentally, they are leading the way to safety. In a similar way, the church is to lead broken and lost people to the place of safety where they can be restored. And we know where they can be restored at the feet of Jesus. We ought to be following Jesus so well that to follow us is to ultimately end up at the feet of Jesus. The church ought to be showing the world how to get to the shores of grace. How do we know if they are becoming disciples of Jesus? This is not rocket science. They start looking like him. That's how we know as a church whether we are uh, leading in the right way. That those who are broken and lost begin to look like Jesus, right? It's the same thing uh, in the 90s when they say, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like what? Like Mike. What started to happen? All those who were following Michael Jordan start wearing his jerseys, start wearing his headbands, everybody mimicking and looking like little Michael Jordans. And that's the same thing that ought to happen around here is that people should start looking like little Jesuses all over this place. I want to be, I want to be like Jesus. It's what, it's what we should be saying. But here's the problem with the church, though. Even in our leadership meeting, Kim Berry challenged us in this. We can talk the talk, but few people want to walk the walk. No one is getting tugged to safety if the tugboats stay in the harbor. If all of the tugboats want to stay in the church where it's safe and where it's pretty and cute, no one that's lost on the sea is getting saved until the tugboats decide to leave the harbor. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Ring a bell. You put that sticky note in front of your brain, that covenant that he made with Abraham. I'm going to make you a father of what? Of all nations. You know what's happening? When you go and make disciples of all nations, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham thousands of years ago. God is faithful. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's do a little homework here. In the Greek, this word go means go. For all of you who need to get it broken down for you before you go anywhere, well, how I know, how I know that really mean Go. Because that could mean something else. That could mean stop. I don't know. It could be opposite day for all I know. No, it means go. <laughs> Pastor Steve puts it this way. The co-mission is a go mission. There is nuances to this word and lots of arguing about whether Jesus was requiring everyone to go somewhere different than, they, than where they actually live. 
That's the favorite theme of most of the conference when it comes to missions. Is Jesus saying that everyone must go, leave where they are located to make disciples, go across the world, go to different nations? Is that what Jesus is requiring of everyone? Or is Jesus saying that some people must stay in as we go, as we do life, we ought to make disciples. As we go to work, as we go to the bakery, as we go to the coffee shop, we ought to be making disciples. Which one is it? Here's what I think. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. Whether exegetically it requires to go, logically it certainly is. How are disciples made in all the people groups of the world if everyone stays right where they are? At the same time, not everybody can go, and the goers need senders to support them and make disciples on the home front. It takes both goers and senders, and this word has something to say to those who are on mission in their own Jerusalem. Make disciples. Not just pastors and missionaries. It's every single person in this room that claims that Jesus is their Savior. If you're clinging to the cross, you ought to be making disciples, not just coming to church to hear good preaching. You ought to be making disciples. Your life ought to be submitted to the King so that you are going and making disciples. For we are all disciples ourselves on a mission to multiply ourselves by intentionally helping to make disciples, make disciples of all nations, of all nations. When you go, know this, church, that God is with you. A lot of us are afraid to proclaim the gospel at our jobs, at our workplaces, on a train. I want you to know this, that God will give you power to say what you need to say. He'll do it. I'm a living witness of it. He'll give you some boldness you never thought of. You'll be bold as a lion. Walk away a coward again, but you'll be bold in that moment. I can't believe I just said that. I don't even talk to people. I'm talking to people. So what does it look like when little tugboats are on the go? What happens when tugboats leave the harbor? It looks like when Will Jones, one of the gentlemen who attends our church, he's not here today because he had to work, so I did ask him permission to say this. Will Jones, he works for Ford Motor Company, and at work, he got into some conversation with uh, about four or five unbelievers, um, and at some point, they got interested in having Bible study with him. This past Friday, on his off day, he invited those Uh, five guys to Bible study, four of them showed up, and four of them got saved. And what is he doing? Will Jones left the safety of his little harbor, and he went to go tug a few guys to safety. Here's what you need to know. Christ is attractive. He is attractive. You don't need to sell Jesus. You just need to proclaim him. That's all you have to do. You don't have to sell him. You don't have to dress him up. You just preach Jesus. That's all you got to do. I promise you, I promise you, people are coming. What happens in the human heart when they see Jesus, the reflex of the soul, when the eyes of the heart is open, is I want him. I want him. When you see a beautiful picture, you don't, you, you don't decide whether it's beautiful. You say, that's beautiful. The same thing with Jesus. When you see him, that's beautiful. I want him. This is what my soul has been longing for. When the church proclaims Jesus, people are coming to him. He's beautiful. That's why we keep lifting him up, and that's what Will Jones did on his job. The people at his job seen something different in Will. And what was it? They seen Jesus. That's what they seen. They seen Jesus. And what should we say about Another guy that I know by the name of Joseph in the city of Gary up at the mill, he's having Bible study during his lunch break with five guys. Just tugboats, just tugging on people. And what should we say about Keith Stone there in the back? A couple epics ago, he shows up with five young men in his car. And he says they were in my neighborhood, talked to their mom, asked them, told them about our program, and here they are. What are they doing? They're just tugging on people. They are being tugboats, and they are bringing people into God's kingdom. 
Usually when we see a tugboat, we usually see another boat trailing behind it. Those who are on mission usually got some lost person behind them, tugging them along, saying, I know the way to safety. They are not the kind of boats that are attractive. Tugboats are not attractive. If you want to flex, you don't go out and buy a tugboat. If you want to show off, you don't say, let me get that tugboat right there. That's not what you do. You just don't get that. Get you a yacht or something. Tugboats are not built for their own good or their own interest, but in the interest of others. The thing that makes a tugboat beautiful is this, is sight is a sight of good news. When you're stuck out in the middle of the sea, the last thing you want to see is a pretty boat. You want to see that boat right there. If you're stuck, you're stranded, you have no food, you have anything, you're just stuck out there in the middle of the sea. The thing that you want to see more than anything is a tugboat. Because it means safety has come, rescue has come, and we like tugboats have nothing impressive about us. We don't preach ourselves, we don't boast in ourselves, but, we, but like tugboats, we are beautiful because the sight of a believer is good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's why we're beautiful, because of the good news that we bring. Paul says in Corinthians, we are jars of clay with treasure inside of us. Something that's way beautiful, way more valuable than us. And when you see the church, you ought to say, rescue has arrived. Rescue has come. We are the site of good news. So when the church shows up, the city ought to get excited. We ought to see some people being sought out and found. We ought to look at the weir of our tugboats and see people following us to the shores of grace. So here's my question to you, Bethel Gary, each individual in this room. Are you in the harbor or are you amongst the sea? Are you doing life in a way that people who are lost know you are a tugboat, a sight of good news? When was the last time you hooked someone up to you and said, follow me. Who are you living for? Are you living for Jesus or are you living for yourself? I'm going to give you my pastoral perspective. I think in some ways around here we're doing well. And in some ways we had a lot of room for improvement. In a church as diverse as ours, it's hard to say everyone is this way or that. So with a broad brushstroke, I think Jesus is challenging us to multiply and to mature as a church. To have as our goal more and better disciples. More disciples means we're multiplying. And better disciples mean we're growing in our depth and understanding of Jesus Christ. I think we are as a whole better at maturing disciples than we are multiplying them. We have a lot of people that come to our church across all four campuses campuses, well over 5,000 people were here on Easter, for an example. We have, as well, at this campus in particular, over 1,000 people since we've been open have came through the doors of this building. However, Jesus did not call us to make crowds, but to make disciples. Who cares if you got 10,000 people in your building if they don't know Jesus? Right? Here's the thing. When you know your purpose, right? When we understand that we are to make disciples, when you know your purpose, then you know what to get excited about. So if disciples are not being made, we ought not to be getting excited. Doesn't matter. Right? But, but when you know your purpose and you're arriving at your purpose, now you got a reason to shout. Now you got a reason to rejoice. Rejoice. Here at Bethel, that's what we want to do. Make more and better disciples. We got a logo that we're running this banner under, if you can pull that up. The goal of the mission here is to make more and better disciples. I like uh, some evil, but it's not. <laughs> There's an M at the top and a B at the bottom for more and better. We want better disciples. That is you. We want you to grow. 
We also want more disciples, which means we need more tugboats moving out and seeking out lost people and saying, if you're hurting, if you're depressed, you've been used for your body, you're tired of living, come and follow me. I know a place of safety. There's so many broken and hurting people out here, and we, ought to, we got the answer. We don't say anything. People are hurting. So what a good summary of the Great Commission be, go and make more and better disciples, more and better M and B. Today we are announcing the next chapter of our church story and grounding it in the words of King Jesus, more and better disciples. We have six initiatives. Some are more on the more side and some on the better side with the emphasis on children and teenagers. So in a second, we will have a video of our senior pastor explaining our more and better initiative. And after him, a couple of our other campus pastors will explain the initiatives in their building. I do apologize about the video. It is, it's not that great. That's not. But nevertheless, you'll get, the, I'm just real. I just say it's not that good. But anyways, we did our best. So Pastor Steve will be on the video here in a second after that our other campus pastor, and then I'll come up and I'll talk about the Gary campus. Amen? Give your attention to the screen. Good morning, Bethel Church Gary. Pastor Steve here, coming to you uh, via technology. Um, wish I could be there, but I'm going to be presenting a few things to you here through this video. And I'm just excited today. This is a great day in Bethel Church's story and in, in, in its history. It makes me think of other moments that we've had over the years where we just sensed that there was a new chapter and we were stepping out in faith and we've seen how God has uh, continued to bless that. Today is like that. So I'm here now to just share with you some of the details. Uh, we already heard from Pastor Dexter talking about the Great Commission and the call that we have to, to make disciples, to multiply disciples. And uh, today we're talking about what that means for us in a practical way here, at, here at, at Bethel Church. So today we're unveiling what we're calling more and better. In fact, I think we have our uh, logo. If you look at that, you see a, an M and a B, an M above and a B beneath. More and better is our summary of what the Great Commission is. We're called to make more disciples and we're called to make better disciples and we want to do that. We've been doing that for 80 years. We want to continue to do that. And as a result of the blessing of God, and we just want to give him the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving for what he has done, Bethel Church stands at really the cusp of a new season of, of ministry. And to get there, we need to address some of the challenges that are keeping us from getting there. And so more and better is both a vision it is an opportunity for Bethel Church to prayerfully support and financially support the next chapter in our story. And today we're asking you to, to be a part of that and to, uh, with your heart, with your prayers, with your finances as God allows for you to uh, partner with us and to see what God is going to do next. So I'm excited about this. Our leaders are excited about this. And uh, we hope that you sense our enthusiasm today. My role here is to uh, share with you some of the specifics of what more and better means. And what I'm going to share with you here, some of the things are addressing the more side. Some of them are addressing the better side. Some of them are both. Uh, but our desire is to uh, have our church where it needs to be in order for us to fulfill God's call upon us in the words of Jesus and the Great Commission. So specifically, what that means for us is, number one, uh, we think the time has come for us to do a fifth campus. It was six years ago that we stood before the church and we were one campus and we said, hey, we think that God's calling us to do this multi-congregation, multi-site thing. Uh, throughout Northwest Indiana. Today we have four campuses as the fruit of that vision. And we believe that the time has come for us to do uh, a fifth campus. Now, where that would be exactly, I can't say. Um, further, we are open to some creativity and opportunities for what that campus or campuses could be. 
It could be a geographical campus in some location where there would be ministry opportunity. Uh, it also could be a language-specific campus. And what I mean by that is that we live in a very diverse community. We have many people that uh, go home and speak a language other than English. And the opportunities for us to present the gospel, to minister the gospel in languages that are most known, most comfortable, is something that we just need to look at. And so we are presently uh, looking at two language-specific campuses. One would be a Spanish-speaking campus, and I don't have much more to share than that, but we obviously have a very large Spanish-speaking population in Northwest Indiana, so there's opportunity there. We also see opportunities with, uh, within the Chinese community and a Mandarin language congregation, and uh, there's more that could be shared with that. But both of those have incredible gospel opportunities, and we want to uh, prayerfully fund and pursue and see what God would do. So a new campus, a fifth campus addressing geographical or language opportunities in Northwest Indiana is the first initiative. Here's the second one. Second one has to do with the City Life Center. And I know that this is something very near and dear to the Gary campus, and we're so thankful for, uh, for Ken Berry and his team and what God is doing already in the City Life Center. But one of the realities that they have is that uh, while they are getting funding from outside organizations, those funds almost entirely go towards programming and the operational expenses of the City Life Center are more difficult to fund. We would like, in, as a part of More and Better, to help provide the funds that are needed uh, for the operational expenses of the City Life Center. So that's the second initiative. Here's the third one. It has to do with the Crown Point campus. Uh, we have seen some really incredible growth in, in just the sheer numbers of people that are attending Bethel Church. And uh, this is particularly true at the Crown Point campus and is great. We're happy about that. The challenge for us is that our auditorium capacity on Sunday mornings is very near its reasonable limit. And we, uh, we have been concerned about this. We've been uh, trying to be creative and, and address the issue. Uh, but what has happened is that uh, this last year, as we began to see those numbers and realize the challenge, uh, we began to ask, how can we address it? One of the ways to address it is to build a new auditorium. And, you know, many churches do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but that's a, for a church our size, would be a huge ticket number, $12, 15000000 million to build an auditorium. And uh, that we would prefer not to, not to do. So this last summer, we began looking at the geometry, the shape, the shell of our Crown Point Auditorium, and we realized that when we built the building almost 20 years ago, we built it with a lot of height. It's a very tall structure, and we began to wonder, is there any way that we could utilize the volume of our, of our shell to add to the seating capacity? So the elders commissioned a feasibility study with a local architectural firm. They came in, they looked, they measured, and they said, we think that you have real possibilities here. And so we commissioned a further uh, level of architectural drawings, and we have just been so pleased to discover that uh, we can make our present 1,000-seat auditorium have a seating capacity of 1,500 people, a 50% increase without adding a square foot to the footprint of the building and utilizing space that has been quietly in the, in the attics and in the, uh, above the ceiling for, for seats and for people and for gospel hearing and ministry and for a fraction, a very small fraction of the cost of a 1,500-seat auditorium. So the third initiative that is part of More and Better is to add to the seating capacity at Crown Point and to utilize these spaces and to uh, address our attendance challenges. Uh, while we're at Crown Point, I'll share another thing. One of our most fruit-bearing ministries in our church is the student ministry. And we're thankful for the student ministry at all the campuses. I know we just began the Verge ministry uh, recently at the Gary campus. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. So 
Crown Point, the, 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 the student ministry here, has had explosive growth. At, to give you an idea, this last Tuesday, there were, at the Tuesday night middle school gathering, there were 306 middle schoolers there that night. Now, that's an enormous number, and our student ministry space was never built for that kind of, that kind of number of kids. And so uh, part of the, what we want to do with More and Better is to expand the space of the uh, student center, to do everything we can with the shell that is there, to make that the most effective ministry space that we possibly can, and to address the needs of our student ministry. Now, there are, uh, there are uh, four other initiatives that are part of More and Better, but rather than me share these things, we're actually going to let our campus leaders do this. And so you're going to hear from Pastor Mark at Cedar Lake, you're going to hear from Pastor Dan at uh, Hobart Portage, and you're going to hear from Pastor Dexter here in a moment regarding what we are wanting to do to help with the ministry at Bethel Church Gary. One final thing I just want to say, uh, we love you, our hearts are with you, we're one church in four locations, and uh, we treasure that unity and the partnership that we have together in gospel ministry in Northwest Indiana. God's grace to you all. Hello, Bethel Gary. Mark Colton here, campus pastor of Bethel Cedar Lake. And on behalf of the Cedar Lake campus, I wanna let you know that we are excited for what God is going to do through more and better. Here at this campus, we're looking forward to a complete remodel of the children's wing. We have been so blessed to have a beautiful auditorium and commons to gather in, but we've been using an outdated facility for our children. Not only is it outdated, we suffered some water damage about a month ago. We want families to look forward to coming into this space. We want to see God use our facilities to reach more children. I hear great things coming out of the Gary campus, and we consider it a privilege to be connected to the ministry there and Bethel Church as a whole. Hey Bethel Gary, Pastor Dan Jacobson here. I'm over at the Holbrook Portage campus and we are delighted for what God is doing, particularly through your campus pastor, Pastor Dexter Harris, over at the Gary campus. We're so excited to be one church with you, our brothers and sisters. Well, the story of our campus begins back in 2014 when Central Baptist Church and Bethel Church merged together and eight days later, our building, which had never flooded, took on water. We lost half of our kids' ministry space. So we were tucking our kids in the corners and, and any, any empty space, any rooms that we could find to do makeshift ministry in. And honestly, that was okay for us when we were a campus of 70 to 80 kids. But over the past two and a half years, God has brought just so many families into the life of our campus that it's not uncommon for us to see 130 to 150 kids here on a weekend. And so what we're looking to do through more and better is to reclaim some of that space that was lost in the flood, particularly this classroom that I'm in right now, along with two that are alongside of it, to provide proper ministry space for us to preach the message of the gospel and to welcome families from our community into our church. We're so delighted to be able to offer that and to be a part of this journey with you as we expect God to do great things in the future of our church. We're excited to be on this journey together with you. God some praise for what he's doing at our other campuses. We're excited to be a church of, of four campuses, and we've heard about the other three and the work that God is doing and the needs that they have. But I'm up here to now talk to you about the Gary campus, our building that we're sitting in right now. Bethel Gary, over the last year, we have been working hard to get our campus up and running and up to speed, I should say. And here's what we've done so far, some of you may not know. We have repiped the building so our children would have clean drinking water. Our pipes were really, really bad. This is a really old, old building. Um, when I want water, I want to drink water. I want my water to look like coffee. That's just me personally. Uh, we sanded and refinished the gym floor. Uh, we built a brand new kitchen with the help of City Life Center as well with all new appliances. We installed new floors in the West Wing. We have installed new ceiling lights in various rooms, which you can probably tell because you can see your face a little bit better around here. Uh, we made some modest updates in the bathroom, including making them ADA accessible. We have replaced heating and air conditioning units on our building. Actually, this past week, we had replaced those because a couple of those were getting ready to go out. 
We also have purchased new cabinets for the children's classrooms and replaced our old auditorium chairs with comfy new chairs that you're sitting in. Doesn't it feel much better? Amen. Make you want to take one home and put it in your living room. You will go to jail. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but here's the question. Why so much work and money into this building? It is because we desire to see more and better disciples. Let me give you a look at what happens in this building on a typical week. Because many of you may just be here on Sunday, but you're not um, up to date on what happens in this building week in and week out. Bethel Gary is open seven days a week. It is open for our church family and our community. We have over a thousand people in this building throughout the week. Monday through Thursday, we have our City Life Center after school program in this building serving over 80 kids, as I said earlier. And with our new kitchen, we've been able to give our children hot meals. Um, and that may be small to some of you, but some of these kids, that wasn't even getting a hot meal in the evening. And now they're getting that, and we're happy to provide that. We give God praise for that. 